Todd Sesher, Sesher is a professor of politics and public policy and a senior fellow at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. He's co-author of the book, Nuclear Weapons and Cohesive Diplomacy. He's well published and has appeared in a variety of academic journals and in the news media. Todd was previously a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and a John M. Owen National Security Fellow at Harvard University. He regularly consults for several government and military agencies. Todd is the director of the Program on Strategic Stability Evaluations. That's a multi-university working group studying the effects of new technologies on international securities. Please help me welcome Todd Sexer. Uh, I've heard so many variations of my last name over the years that there's really no way uh, that you could mangle it as badly as some people have in the past. Um, so take heart. Uh, well, thank you all uh, for being here, for choosing to spend your uh, Friday afternoon talking about nuclear weapons. Uh, and welcome back. Uh, let me start with a, an illustration. Less than two years ago, the North Korean military tested the largest nuclear weapon that it had ever tested. That weapon had the explosive power of 150 kilotons, is the terminology, uh, or 150,000 tons of conventional equivalent, uh, conventional high explosive, uh, or the equivalent of 150,000 tons of TNT. So to put that in perspective, that is about 10 times as large, that single bomb is about 10 times as large as the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima in Japan in 1945. But here's another way to think about that. The best estimates today tell us that North Korea has somewhere between 20 and 25 nuclear weapons. So let's just put that number right in the middle. Let's say 23 nuclear weapons in the North Korean nuclear arsenal. Now, during World War II, the Allies' most advanced heavy bomber, which was the American B-29, uh, carried a bomb payload of 20,000 pounds of conventional high explosive. So we don't have enough space uh, to put the number of bombers here that we need, but let's imagine uh, that each one of these little planes is the equivalent of 1,000 of those B-29s that were flown in World War II. So if every one of these little planes is 1,000 B-29s, how many would you need to equal the explosive power of North Korea's 23 nuclear weapons. Well, as it turns out, you'd need all of them. Uh, all of the bombs that the United States and its allies dropped on Germany and Japan during World War II. All of World War II equaled by just 23 of these 150 kiloton nuclear bombs. Now, also last year, or a year and a half ago, North Korea tested a ballistic missile. It's called the KN-22 ballistic missile with an intercontinental range that we think has a range of about 8,000 miles. 
Uh, this missile was advanced for a number of reasons. It demonstrated that the North Koreans uh, had developed much better missile engines than we thought that they had. It's a multi-stage rocket, which is a significant technological achievement for them, with a range of about 8,000 miles. So hold that number in your head. Now let's just do a little thought experiment here. Let's imagine that the North Koreans go for the most significant landmark that they can find. We'll imagine the rotunda right here in the center of the map. Uh, within milliseconds of the initial explosion, the nuclear fireball is already half a mile wide, raising everything inside of it, including the entire lawn, most of grounds, to temperatures of several thousand degrees. At the center of the fireball, the temperatures are as hot as the sun, and every living thing inside the fireball is instantly vaporized. But that's not even the worst part. Um, the worst part, a much bigger pro problem, is the shock wave of extremely high pressure created by the blast. Anyone within about a mile of the explosion would feel wind speeds from this nuclear blast of about 500 miles per hour. Within this larger circle, essentially every building is destroyed. Virtually nobody survives. Two and a half miles away, the wind speed drops down to a breezy 160 miles an hour, uh, which is less than 500 miles an hour, but still a Category 5 hurricane. At that pressure, most buildings will be destroyed, and anybody not inside an underground shelter is going to be killed or seriously injured. Um, so you can see this goes from you know, Carter Mountain Orchard, the southern end of the map, all the way almost up to Foxfield, is the size, the radius of uh, of that nuclear blast. Uh, one other thing that I forgot, actually, is that within this larger yellow radius, most people inside that radius will suffer third-degree burns. Now, these are the most severe kinds of burns that go through multiple layers of skin. Uh, now, as we know, these kinds of burns uh, actually turn out to be often painless. Uh, but don't let that fool you. They're painless because they destroy the nerves under the surface of the skin that detect the pain. So if you've been lucky enough to survive this initial blast, you're still not out of the woods because the explosion would ignite everything combustible, including trees, cars, uh, wood buildings, furniture. And at the same time, after that initial shock wave passes and the fireball recedes, a wave of air would come rushing in from the outside feeding fresh oxygen to all of those fires that the nuclear blast had just started. So the heat and the wind created by all those fires happening simultaneously would create a firestorm that could spread for miles. So when everything is said and done, the blast would probably kill somewhere in the neighborhood of 62,000 people, and that's in the summer without students occupying grounds. Another 33,000 or so would be seriously injured. And of course, the town, certainly the university, would be effectively wiped off the map. So that's the bad news. The good news, and there is good news, is that North Korea is not going to try to attack Charlottesville. It only has 23 weapons. Uh, many of those might not be reliable. Charlottesville is not an attractive target for the North Koreans. No, a much better target is the nation's capital. 
a place like Washington, D.C., and now this is where we get into serious territory. That same North Korean bomb, 150 kilotons, dropped on, say, the White House, here in the center of the screen, would kill somewhere in the neighborhood of 350-ish thousand people in an instant. That's Washington, D.C., dropped on New York, say, the Empire State Building. That figure is going to go up to about 1.2 million people. And remember, we're talking about a nuclear strike from the world's newest, smallest, and least sophisticated nuclear power. Russia and China, more traditional nuclear adversaries, have much more powerful weapons, 20 or 30 times as powerful as North Korea's. Now, if China, we have to zoom out here, if China were to hit New York with one of these weapons, just one weapon, Delivered by ballistic missile, it could kill in the neighborhood of 4 million people. That's one missile, 4 million people dead. So now that I have all of your attention, um, let me say first of all, uh, again, thank you for coming and choosing to spend your afternoon talking about nuclear weapons, a decision that you might be regretting right now, but I promise you, you won't. Uh, my name is Todd Sexer. Uh, as Althea said, I'm a professor in the Department of Politics uh, and uh, in the Batten School, uh, as well as a senior fellow at the Miller Center. And I've been teaching courses about international relations generally and nuclear security specifically now uh, for 12 years here at UVA, uh, asking questions about how nuclear weapons have reshaped international relations and, and international diplomacy in particular. Now, when I first arrived here at UVA, nuclear weapons were not a particularly attractive subject of study for many people, uh, certainly not very popular. When the Cold War ended in the early 1990s, the nuclear arms race was over, the Soviet Union collapsed, people were really all too happy to stop thinking about the shadow of nuclear terror that people had lived under for a half century, and nuclear issues were really relegated to the back burner for a long time. Uh, so after uh, half a century uh, of thinking about nuclear strategy and the arms race, scholars as well as government policymakers started thinking about other international security problems, uh, and nuclear strategy really took a back seat. So beyond you know, the efforts of a few rogue countries, to try to build crude nuclear weapons. For the most part, we stopped paying attention to nuclear security issues for, for many years. Uh, but today, for better or for worse, those issues really are back. Uh, I think there are at least four, if you're reading the newspaper every day, four big issues about nuclear weapons that we're reading about. Number one is obviously North Korea. Uh, North Korea first successfully tested a nuclear weapon back in 2006. But for a good decade or so, North Korea was widely mocked as the world's newest, newest nuclear power, uh, mocked as a technologically backward pariah state, uh, full of bluster, conducting nuclear tests that didn't work, missile tests that exploded on the launch pad or shortly after launch, uh, but without any real significant nuclear capability or the ability to uh, pose a grave threat to the United States. Uh, those days, unfortunately, are long gone. In 2017, as I mentioned, North Korea tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. 
an ICBM that could hit the east coast of the United States, uh, as well as a nuclear weapon that was an order of magnitude more powerful than we believed that they were capable of building. Now, the United States has held two summits with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. The last one ended with the United States walking out of the summit uh, with no deal and certainly no progress on rolling back North Korea's nuclear capability. In fact, quite to the contrary, all signs seem to be pointing in the opposite direction, that North Korea is continuing to invest in improving and expanding its nuclear capabilities. So that's one problem. A uh, second problem is the country of Russia, uh, which we're reading about in the news literally today. Uh, in 1987, the United States signed a very important arms control agreement with the Soviet Union called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, which was designed to eliminate certain kinds of nuclear weapons that were seen as especially destabilizing. And this treaty was significant because it was the first treaty, the first arms control treaty between the U.S. and the Soviets that actually reduced the size of the two superpowers' nuclear arsenals, as opposed to putting a cap on those arsenals. Now, for the last several years, the United States has accused Russia of violating the terms of a treaty, specifically by developing uh, a cruise missile, pictured here, uh, that is prohibited under the terms of the treaty. Uh, and uh, this was true in the o Obama administration, continued to be true, true in the Trump administration. Uh, and just recently, uh, the president declared the, the Russians in violation of the INF Treaty, suspended its cooperation. The Russians followed suit. And most likely by August of this year, the treaty will no longer be in force and will terminate altogether. A third issue, of course, that we read about is Iran, a little bit less so today than over the last several years. Iran is different from North Korea because its nuclear and ballistic missile capabilities are nowhere near the level of North Korea's. But Iran, of course, has a similar degree of hostility toward the United States as North Korea does, but it is located in a much more volatile region, and it has close ties with terrorist organizations that, frankly, would be thrilled to get their hands on a nuclear weapon. The previous administration signed of course, a well-known deal with Iran that was intended to prevent them from acquiring the capability, the nuclear material that they would need to build a nuclear weapon. But a year ago, the United States withdrew from that treaty, uh, from that agreement. Not, it was not a treaty, uh, but was a deal. And the United States withdrew. And Iran today is at least holding out the possibility that it might stop complying with the terms of the deal. And then a final issue, which we hear, I think, a little bit less about in, in the news. Uh, but is no less significant, uh, is a program initiated by the Obama administration to modernize, update, and potentially expand the U.S. nuclear arsenal, uh, including building new bombers, new ballistic missiles, new nuclear submarines, uh, as well as revamping existing U.S. nuclear warheads, uh, all to the tune of somewhere around $1.2 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars. So these are all reasons that we should be paying attention to nuclear issues. Another reason is that today we have an administration that is willing to talk about nuclear weapons much more explicitly than any of its predecessors. 
Uh, in a speech a year and a half ago, President Trump declared that the United States would have no choice but to, quote, totally destroy North Korea, uh, a fairly uh, uh, unambiguous reference to using nuclear weapons. Another time, he threatened that North Korea would be met with, quote, fire and fury like the world has never seen if it continued to threaten the United States. Uh, and of course, periodically over Twitter, uh, we have nuclear bluster, nuclear threats uh, coming from the president. And these are all remarkable uh, in part because previous presidents, even during the height of the Cold War, previous presidents were very reluctant to refer explicitly to the use of nuclear weapons. Um, but that is not the case with the current administration. Uh, President Trump, for example, has explicitly suggested, uh, as a presidential candidate, he suggested using nuclear weapons against a terrorist organization, against ISIS. Uh, and again, this is all remarkable because it's so unusual to have a president refer so explicitly to the use of nuclear weapons. But I think they do reflect the current administration's broader belief and broader philosophy about expanding the role of nuclear weapons in US defense strategy. Uh, this was something that President Trump advocated in the 2016 campaign when he talked about expanding the US nuclear arsenal uh, and expanding American military capabilities. Uh, and it's also reflected in the Defense Department's most recent nuclear strategy document uh, released just over a year ago. And that document, which is known as the Nuclear Posture Review, uh, which is uh, performed periodically by uh, presidential administrations, criticized the efforts of previous administrations, especially the Obama administration, uh, to try to reduce the size of the US ar nuclear arsenal arguing that earlier administrations after the end of the Cold War were too optimistic, too sanguine about the possibility of meaningful arms cuts and arms control with Russia and China. This document argued that Russia and China have not followed the lead of the United States, and it argued that you, the US should keep nuclear weapons at the core of American defense strategy. And indeed, the world's nuclear powers have made largely this same calculation in recent years. Today, there are nine countries around the world that have nuclear weapons. And for the most part, all of these countries are either holding their nuclear arsenal steady, as in the case of the US, the UK, France, uh, or actively trying to expand them, as in the case of China, North Korea, India, Pakistan. So nuclear weapons are not going away, uh, despite what we might have hoped 25 years ago. And it's important that we, as citizens, are able to critically evaluate what our political leaders tell us about nuclear weapons, because this is literally a life and death issue. But nuclear weapons pose, I think, a number of unique challenges for people like us trying to evaluate what the experts are saying. One reason is nuclear issues just involve a lot of technical questions uh, that seem intimidating for people on the outside, people that aren't experts. But the experts, frankly, are no help either, uh, inventing all kinds of impenetrable jargon, acronyms, terminology that can seem, make it seem like understanding nuclear weapons is really out of our reach. And I think that's a, an injustice. I think that creates more confusion than, than clarity. Another reason nuclear issues can be challenging, I think, for us to understand is because they don't map 
cleanly onto partisan lines. Right? These days, everything has a partisan tinge. Uh, what restaurant you eat at, what rock band you listen to, uh, what car you drive, all of these have implications for uh, which party you lean towards. Uh, but nuclear issues are interesting because I think they're one of the last few big policy issues that don't break down cleanly along these partisan divides. There is no clear conservative or clear liberal position on nuclear strategy, for example. Uh, most nuclear arms control agreements throughout the Cold War and after were signed and struck not by Democratic administrations, as the stereotype might lead you to expect, but in fact by Republican administrations. Uh, most, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Democratic administrations have also been responsible for developing some of the most um, offensive nuclear technologies that the United States military has deployed. In fact, it was the Obama administration, not a Republican administration, that launched this $1.2 trillion initiative to modernize, update, and potentially expand the U.S. nuclear arsenal. So I think the party lines on nuclear issues are really not that clear, which in one way is a, a significant virtue, right? This is a great thing. But it also makes it hard, I think, for citizens to know where they stand on nuclear issues. Uh, partisanship, as it turns out, can be a useful heuristic sometimes in trying to help us, uh, helping us decipher complicated policy issues. But in this case, it, it's really no help at all. So today, I, I, I want to help a little bit uh, in, in trying to understand or shed some light on the role of nuclear weapons in international politics today. Um, specifically, I want to talk about three insights, uh, three findings or conclusions from current research on nuclear issues uh, that I think have some important lessons for how we should think about nuclear issues today. Uh, and then hopefully we'll get to leave some time for questions as well. So let, let, let's get right into it. So there are three issues that I want to talk about. Uh, number one, I want to talk about nuclear proliferation today. Uh, I want to talk about the myth and the reality of the spread of nuclear weapons. Number two, I want to talk about nuclear weapons as tools of coercion, tools of aggression, uh, and the threat from rogue states uh, or other countries that it might acquire nuclear weapons and, and what they might be able to do with those weapons. And then lastly, uh, I want to talk about nuclear deterrence. And again, try to match up the reality of nuclear deterrence today with what I think common, almost stereotypical understandings of nuclear weapons really are. So let's start with the spread of nuclear weapons and who gets them. President John F. Kennedy once predicted that by 1975, there would be 15 or 20 countries around the world with nuclear weapons. Uh, other people at this time in the mid-1960s uh, projected even larger numbers. There'd be 20, 30, maybe 40 countries around the world that would have the ability to detonate a nuclear explosive. And I think this belief, President Kennedy's belief, as well as those who agreed with him, re reflected a broader, I think, pessimism in the 1960s. Uh, that nuclear weapons were spreading rapidly, that there was no way to really control them, countries had a lot of incentives to try to acquire them, and there was just no way to stop it as long as nuclear power existed. You couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. 
And I think that it's easy to see why in the 60s and 70s people believed this. Um, during this period, a number of countries acquired nuclear weapons at a fairly rapid clip. The United States in 1945, of course, the Soviets just a few years later, the British after that, the French, the Chinese. Nuclear weapons seemed to be proliferating rapidly around the world, up to the point where when the Soviet Union collapsed and left nuclear weapons on the territory of three suddenly new former Soviet republics, uh, adding three new nuclear countries to, to the list, suddenly there are 12 nuclear countries around the world. Uh, and even beyond the countries that actually had the bomb, there were countries like Iraq, Iran, Libya, Argentina, Brazil, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, North Korea, all of these countries on the watch list uh, where people, experts in Washington and outside of Washington calculated that it was just a matter of time before all these countries would acquire nuclear weapons as well. But as it turns out, since then, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, four countries have actually given up their nuclear weapons, including those three countries that were born nuclear, uh, the former Soviet republics, as well as South Africa. And we've added just one new nuclear state to the club. John F. Kennedy is known, I think, for his optimism about international politics, but here is, I think, a case where he was actually too pessimistic about the ability of the international community and the United States to fight the spread of nuclear weapons. Much too pessimistic. Nuclear proliferation, as it turns out, is currently at its slowest rate that it has ever been in the nuclear age. So why? What accounts for this difference between pessimistic projections in the 60s and 70s and what I think is a much more optimistic outcome than what anybody believed was possible uh, back when Kennedy made his projection in 1963. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons. I'm going to focus just on two here. Uh, one, I think, is the emergence of economic sanctions as a tool of nuclear nonproliferation, something that Kennedy did not envision was even thinkable back in 1963. Uh, the United States at that point had imposed economic sanctions over nuclear proliferation on exactly zero countries. Had never done it before. Uh, today, of course, economic sanctions are widely used as a tool for preventing proliferation to punish states uh, that we believe are violating or on the cusp of violating their obligations under international treaties. Uh, but this wasn't always the case. When India, for example, in 1974, tested its first nuclear explosive, the United States responded not with economic sanctions, but in fact increased foreign aid, increased trade ties, uh, and a stronger political relationship than it had had before 1974. The first time that the United States ever imposed economic sanctions on a country for violating non-proliferation obligations uh, was against South Africa in 1975. And that marked really a period where the U.S. started to adopt a number of pieces of legislation that would impose various forms of restrictions on economic relationships, trade, foreign aid, military aid, uh, on countries that were either exporting nuclear technology or importing 
nuclear material that was prohibited under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, without proper nuclear safeguards. Uh, since then, the United States has imposed economic sanctions now against a total of seven countries. Now, I said a moment ago that I think these economic sanctions have been in part responsible for the success of nuclear non-proliferation in the 1990s and onward. But it's kind of weird to say that because when you look at the list, there are really only two countries on this list that you can count, I think, as a success for these non-proliferation sanctions. And one of those, I think, the jury is really still out, uh, and that's the case of Iran. Libya is really the only clear-cut case of a country that experienced economic sanctions that were imposed or led by the United States and proceeded to give up its nuclear weapons program as a means for getting those sanctions lifted. South Africa went on to acquire the bomb. Pakistan, the same thing. Argentina and Brazil uh, were not dissuaded at all from pursuing nuclear and ballistic missile research, although they ultimately scrapped their programs that had nothing to do with economic sanctions. Uh, and of course, North Korea has been the target of US sanctions since 2002, uh, which have not been successful in coercing the North Koreans. So why would I say that economic sanctions are an effective non-proliferation tool? Well, I think there are a couple of key factors going on here that this list doesn't accurately represent. Number one is the United States has gotten much, much better over time at imposing economic sanctions. As the global economy has become more interconnected, with the United States at the core of that economy, economic sanctions have become more effective. More countries feel the pinch when they are subject to trade or financial restrictions from the United States. In addition, the United States imposes secondary economic sanctions, meaning that it punishes firms who do business with countries, like Iran, who are subject to American economic sanctions. And so the reach of these sanctions is much wider. The international community has also gotten better at this. Uh, the UN Security Council, the European Union, both were critical in imposing economic and financial sanctions against Iran to bring them to the negotiating table in 2015. A second factor is, as time has gone on, the expectation for a country thinking about trying to acquire nuclear weapons the expectation that it will be subject to economic sanctions and as punishment has gone up dramatically. The United States and the international community have demonstrated credibly that they are willing to impose severe sanctions on countries that violate their non-proliferation obligations. And that was not true at all in the 1970s. It was far from clear back then that a country that tried to build nuclear weapons would be subject to this kind of economic pain. So what that means is that the cases of success are the cases that don't show up here at all, where the, merely the threat of economic sanctions is enough to dissuade a country like South Korea in the late 1970s or Taiwan from even trying to acquire nuclear weapons. Today, depending on how you measure it, around the world there's something like 50, 40 to 50, what we might call nuclear-capable states countries that have access to nuclear material, enriched uranium or plutonium. They have scientific expertise in a range of disciplines that are important for building a nuclear warhead. 
And they have an industrial base that would allow them to manufacture with precision the components that go in to building a nuclear bomb. So 40 to 50 nuclear-capable states, and yet just nine countries that actually possess nuclear weapons. That's a very big gap, and one that I think represents, at least in part, the success of this threat that's become increasingly credible over time, that a country that violates its non-proliferation obligations will be subject to economic pain that will make the gamble not worthwhile. So that's one factor that I think has played a very significant role in containing the spread of nuclear weapons over time. A second factor. Um, all of these uh, frightening faces uh, have one important thing in common. Well, two, really. Uh, they're all what we might term authoritarian dictators, obviously. These are not democratic leaders. Uh, number two, they all, at one point or another, explored or pursued with vigor nuclear weapons programs. They all wanted to get the bomb. Some of them succeeded. In a couple of cases, Stalin, Mao, of course, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, some didn't. Uh, Gaddafi here, of course, in the, in the bottom right, uh, tried for many years to develop a nuclear program, was never successful. But one interesting pattern that we observe over time is that it turns out that authoritarian dictators tend to be unusually interested in acquiring nuclear weapons. It's a very striking pattern over time. Not all of them. There are some dictators that never tried to acquire nuclear weapons. And of course, they're not the only leaders that have tried to do this. There are plenty of democracies, uh, the US, UK, France, India, Israel, uh, that do have nuclear weapons. But when you look at the patterns across time, authoritarian dictators are much, much more likely to try to build these budding nuclear programs than are democratic leaders. So I think another factor that has gone underappreciated in containing the spread of nuclear weapons is the growth and expansion of democratic governments around the world since the end of World War II, uh, which, on the one hand, has been encouraging because it's replaced some of these leaders with democracies, with democratic governments. On the other hand, it makes the recent turn uh, away from democracy in some countries, in Eastern Europe, in South America, a little bit more worrisome. I think an underappreciated risk of that erosion of democratic norms in many of these former democracies is this risk of nuclear proliferation. That when you put authoritarian dictators in power, you tend, on, on average, to put in people, leaders, who tend to be interested in acquiring nuclear weapons. Okay, so that's one, I think, piece of good news overall, is that nuclear weapons have not spread nearly to the extent that people feared that they might. I think there's a second piece of good news as well, and that has to do with the dangers of nuclear proliferation. It's well known, well understood, that nuclear weapons have an important strategic benefit, which is that they prevent aggression. They're very good at deterring other countries from engaging, against, uh, engaging in aggression especially territorial aggression against a country that has nuclear weapons. Uh, it's often said in the scholarship on nuclear, nuclear deterrence, 
Uh, the nuclear weapons are the ultimate invasion insurance. The ultimate insurance policy against your country being invaded by your neighbor. But there's something else that goes along with nuclear deterrence and the possession of nuclear weapons. There's also a widespread fear that nuclear weapons can help countries commit aggression, not just prevent it. One of the reasons that we and American policymakers care so much uh, about nuclear proliferation is that we worry that countries that acquire nuclear weapons might be able to coerce their adversaries, including maybe the United States, into giving up territory, changing their foreign policy, uh, maybe even deposing a leader, making some other kind of important foreign policy concession by threatening the prospect of a nuclear attack. And I think that's the conventional view today. It's a view that has a very long pedigree. Uh, from the earliest days of the nuclear age, we find American leaders who believe that having nuclear weapons, particularly, particularly during that four-year period where the US enjoyed a nuclear monopoly from 1945 to 1949, uh, this is uh, Truman's Secretary of State, uh, James Burns, who's uh, right here. Uh, it's a great picture. You have Truman on the far left, uh, George Marshall, and then on the far right, you have Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, at least three of them, uh, I don't think Marshall ever made his opinions on nuclear weapons very clear, but at least three of these leaders uh, were fairly convinced in the power of nuclear weapons to coerce, not just deter, not just prevent aggression, but compel other countries to make concessions. Uh, Eisenhower, for example, believed that atomic threats that he had made in the 1950s uh, against China during the Korean War, uh, against China during a couple of crises over the Taiwan Strait, he believed that those nuclear threats were critical in getting China to make concessions to the United States and to uh, compel them to end the Korean War. But this isn't just uh, an old claim. This is a, a claim that we see made in contemporary debates today about nuclear proliferation. Uh, some observers, for example, have warned us that if Iran were allowed to acquire nuclear weapons, it would try to redraw the map of the Middle East. It would take over oil fields, push the US out of the region, and start making all kinds of demands of its neighbors. Uh, these kinds of demands, telling the king of Bahrain to hand over power, uh, dictating what OPEC's oil prices or production level will be. Uh, it's not that we would see more war, per se, in the Middle East. It's that we would see Iran's neighbors having to submit to Iranian demands for fear of nuclear punishment. And of course, this is how American leaders in the current presidential administration have described North Korea's nuclear weapons. Uh, this is uh, Mike Pompeo uh, when he was director of the CIA uh, saying that these weapons, North Korea's weapons, are not about deterrence. They are there for coercion, to force the United States and South Korea to make concessions which might ultimately lead to the reunification of the Korean Peninsula under Kim Jong-un's leadership. This is a view that is widely adopted, I think, throughout the government, but also in pol other policy circles and academic circles uh, as well. So recently, I tried to take stock of this claim in a book that I wrote uh, to ask whether this fear really has any historical basis uh, and what the historical basis might be. And one of the things I did in this book is that I compiled a database of coercive threats, cases where countries made demands 
uh, demands for some kind of concession from another country, holding out the threat of military punishment if the, the other country didn't, didn't comply. Uh, in this database, there are threats from the United States, from other nuclear powers, uh, big crises that you would recognize, the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, uh, but also threats from non-nuclear powers, countries that don't have the advantage of having nuclear weapons looming in the background, uh, over smaller issues that we might not have necessarily heard of. And we can just ask a very basic question here, uh, which is what I did in, in this book. When, when nuclear countries make these threats, when they make coercive demands of their neighbors or their adversaries, how often do they succeed? How often do they have to go to war to, uh, to achieve their foreign policy goals as opposed to winning without violence? How often do the targets comply, fearing the possibility of nuclear punishment? If the fear about Iran and North Korea is correct, we should see nuclear-armed countries succeeding at a much higher rate when they make coercive demands. As it turns out, it turns out not to be the case. That nuclear-armed countries succeed actually at a slightly lower rate than non-nuclear countries. Uh, now, it could be the case that you know, the things that the United States demands are really not comparable to the things that non-nuclear countries demand, uh, which is another possible explanation that I looked at in the book. And again, that turns out not to be true. The United States demands trivial things or things that uh, on the scale, uh, the, the larger scale of foreign policy goals might be considered trivial just as often as non-nuclear states do. Now, it could be the case that countries don't get a coercive advantage from their nuclear arsenals just by the virtue of having nuclear weapons. They have to have more or better, more sophisticated nuclear weapons than their adversaries. Uh, this is an argument that's commonly made today in nuclear strategy circles, uh, an argument that the United States must have strategic superiority, uh, is the term, over its adversaries in order to have coercive leverage. Uh, and it's also one argument that people have used to oppose nuclear arms cuts. Uh, and yet when we do the comparison, countries that enjoy nuclear superiority over their adversaries, again, do not succeed at higher rates than countries that do not. Now, this is a, a small piece of the evidence. Uh, this is just a, a crude comparison. Uh, we can talk about the details behind some of these cases. But what I think this analysis uh, suggests, at least, is that nuclear weapons don't seem to play the role that is often attributed to them in international politics. They're just not as useful as tools of coercion as American leaders were once optimistic about and as American leaders are currently fearful of. They're very useful as tools of deterrence for preventing aggression, but engaging in aggression is a much different animal, and nuclear weapons tend not to be credible as tools of coercion. So that's good news. Two pieces of good news, actually. Uh, number one is that nuclear weapons haven't spread nearly as far as we thought they would, uh, or as widely. And number two, that nuclear weapons turn out to be not particularly useful for offensive, aggressive foreign policy goals. Now for the bad news. Uh, and this is the third point that I want to make. Even though nuclear weapons 
have not proven all that useful as tools of aggression in the past, that is really not stopping leaders today from trying to come up with new and creative and inventive ways of uh, employing them in their foreign policy strategies to try to get what they want. And, and this is the third lesson that I want to leave you with, which is that in the future, the nuclear weapons that will matter the most are not the gigantic city-destroying nuclear weapons that I started off the talk with. They are the nuclear weapons that are smallest in size, or the ones that are going to be most relevant to U.S. foreign policy and nuclear deterrence in the future. Let me explain what I mean. This is not a small nuclear explosion. Uh, this is a picture of, the, uh, of a, the largest nuclear test that was ever conducted. Uh, it was a, a 50 megaton nuclear explosion, right? So we started to talk with a 150 kiloton nuclear explosion. This is 50 million tons, 50 megatons of TNT or conventional high explosive. The largest nuclear explosion uh, that's ever occurred. It was a Soviet test, 50 megatons. So remember that hypothetical North Korean attack on New York, the Empire State Building, that would kill, I think it was 400 some thousand people. That same attack with this bomb, that was a bomb that was never deployed, uh, but if, hypothetically, if it were used in an attack like that, it would kill 20 times that number, uh, somewhere around 9 million people, as opposed to 400,000. People 35 miles away from the explosion, well into New Jersey, would get third-degree burns from a nuclear explosion like this that took place in Manhattan. Um, and th this really represented, I think, the trend during the Cold War, which was for the U.S. and the Soviet Union to research, invest in, and ultimately deploy larger and larger nuclear weapons. And, and stereotypically, this is what we think of, right? When we think of nuclear weapons, nuclear explosions, we think of these massive explosions that can level entire cities and kill millions of people. But it turns out that nuclear weapons actually can also come in much smaller packages. Uh, this is a picture of the B-61 gravity bomb, uh, a weapon that the U.S. currently deploys that can produce a yield just 2% the size of the explosive magnitude of the Hiroshima bomb. Less than one kiloton of nuclear explosive force. So one 150th of the size of the North Korean bomb that we talked about at the beginning. This has always been possible. Building smaller and smaller nuclear weapons has always been within the technical reach, the technical capabilities of the United States. It's currently within reach of Russia. The Chinese are researching ways to do this as well. But only recently has this become, I think, a significant question in discussions about nuclear deterrence. And the reason is that the benefits of having small nuclear weapons have always been limited. So why? Well, there's basically two reasons you'd want to use a nuclear weapon. Uh, number one is to inflict massive amounts of destruction. A gigantic nuclear bomb delivered by a ballistic missile uh, that explodes over, say, Moscow and kills millions of people. And the idea is that the ability to impose that kind of punishment will prevent your adversary from taking any steps against you. 
Uh, but a low yield, a small nuclear warhead, is obviously not very good for that. We need bigger and bigger nuclear warheads to impose that level of punishment. A more likely, and a second function of a nuclear weapon is to destroy a hardened target. A hardened target would be like an underground bunker. Uh, a command and control bunker that's under multiple feet of reinforced concrete 20 feet under the ground. Uh, or a ballistic missile silo, again, protected by layers of reinforced concrete uh, that are designed to protect against an attack, protect against an explosion. A nuclear warhead can be very useful for destroying a target like that, but if you're going to use a low-yield warhead to do that job, you have to be really accurate. Um, you, to destroy, say, an under, underground bunker or a missile silo, uh, you need to get like a B-61 bomb with a kiloton of explosive force uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50 meters away or even less from the target. Uh, that's an incredibly high level of accuracy and one that was really not feasible until only recently, especially with ballistic missiles. Uh, this is a picture of the most accurate ballistic missile in the U.S. arsenal, uh, that is the Trident II submarine-launched ballistic missile. Uh, we don't know its level of accuracy. It's, of course, classified, but we think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 100 meters. Uh, and when we say that, what we mean is that this missile, half the time, will land within 100 meters of the target and half the time outside of that 100-meter radius. So 50% chance of landing within 100 meters. That's pretty good. In fact, that's extremely good but not quite good enough uh, to use a low-yield nuclear warhead. But the accuracy levels, right, this is a weapon that was deployed in the 1980s. And the degree of accuracy of ballistic missiles is increasing dramatically. Uh, with GPS guidance, uh, incredible computing power that you can put on a ballistic missile, it can read the terrain, it can change course mid-flight, uh, countries are now, including the United States, investing in technologies that could bring that level of accuracy under 10 meters. So half the time, a ballistic missile, right, launched thousands of kilometers away, thousands of miles away, could land within 10 meters of the target half the time. It's an incredible level of accuracy, and importantly, it's the level of accuracy that you need in order to use low-yield nuclear warheads effectively. And in fact, what we see is that U.S. nuclear strategy is starting to recognize this fact. Um, the Nuclear Posture Review, the report that came out last year that I told you about, uh, calls for the United States to expand its arsenal of low-yield, right, small nuclear warheads, not big city-busting bombs, but smaller and smaller nuclear weapons. Why? What is the value? Well, number one, with small nuclear warheads, you can target hardened targets, underground bunkers, missile silos, other military targets, without creating a huge amount of nuclear fallout or causing large numbers of civilian casualties. That can be attractive. But number two, and perhaps even more importantly, this is primarily a response to at least what is perceived as Russia's new military doctrine. Russia's problem from a military standpoint, is that if it gets into a conventional war 
with the United States, with NATO, uh, say in the Baltics, uh, a war over Latvia or Estonia, it is likely to be outgunned from a conventional non-nuclear standpoint. So some Russia specialists, experts, believe that Russia has devised a new strategy, and that is to employ low-yield nuclear warheads in the event that it's losing a conventional war against NATO to use a low-yield nuclear warhead as an indication of resolve, to attack maybe an American military target or maybe even as just a demonstration strike, but to cross the nuclear threshold as a way of demonstrating, intimidating NATO to show Russian resolve and to convince the United States to back down in that conflict. So some people call this the escalate to de-escalate doctrine, to use a low-yield warhead to intimidate NATO and the United States and convince them to end the war on Russian terms. So the Pentagon believes, and now is making the argument, in fact, is already investing in technology uh, to build more low-yield nuclear weapons, to try to deter this kind of attack. Now, why would you need them? Well, the Pentagon argues that without low-yield nuclear warheads, there is not a credible threat to respond to that low-yield attack. To use, say, a megaton nuclear weapon in response to a kiloton nuclear strike is disproportionate. And that, that threat to do that would not be particularly credible. And so the Pentagon argues, in fact, uh, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis made this argument, the current commander of the US Strategic Command made this argument, uh, that the US needs more low-yield nuclear weapons to give the United States nuclear options that specifically don't require aircraft to deliver. So you don't have to put pilots aircraft in a combat zone in order to make that nuclear response credible. And again, this is only viable. These weapons that the Pentagon now wants to build are only viable with dramatic improvements that we are now seeing in the degree of accuracy of ballistic missiles. So the larger picture here is that in the future, we're really not going to be talking about these gigantic multi-megaton city-destroying nuclear weapons. Uh, in, in the years to come, the weapons that are going to be driving the debate about American nuclear strategy and about credible nuclear deterrence are likely to be the small ones, the ones that blur this line between what is nuclear and what is conventional. Uh, and the possibility, some people make the argument that the possibility that we will see a, that nuclear threshold crossed for the first time since 1945 increases every time the size of nuclear warheads declines. Because no longer does the use of nuclear weapons imply mass casualties and the destruction of cities and nuclear fallout. Um, increasingly, these are weapons that can cross the threshold without incurring uh, that significant downside. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, I'm sure there are many questions, and uh, I want to at least give you a chance to ask the questions that, that you came here uh, and, and spent all this time listening to me to ask. So uh, again, thank you for your attention. And um, I think we have a microphone that will likely come around. Um, so uh, just raise your hand, and, and the mic will come around. So perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, great lecture. Um, you talked a lot about the coercive power or lack thereof of nuclear weapons, but could you talk a little bit about the deterrent value of them? 
especially in light of the Ukraine situation. Mm -hmm. So in the 1990s, for anyone who isn't aware, Ukraine agreed to give up their nuclear weapons. And as part of that, they were supposed to get a security guarantee from the United States and the West that would guarantee their territorial integrity. Clearly, events have shown that that was not worth the paper it was written on. So if I was Taiwan or South Korea, I might be seriously rethinking nuclear weapons as a deterrent, mm -hmm. and I'd appreciate your thoughts on that. Thank you. And let me even add more complication to that claim. Uh, after the Gulf War in 1991, uh, in, a general in the Indian Army was asked what the military lesson of the Gulf War was, and he said, there's only one lesson, don't fight the United States without nuclear weapons. Uh, and of course, uh, not only uh, was this lesson apparent in the case of Ukraine, but also in the case of Libya. Now that's a little bit more ambiguous because Libya never had nuclear weapons on its territory and is frankly never even close to doing it. Uh, but did strike an agreement with the United States to give up its nuclear uh, capabilities or at least the, the, the vestiges of its nuclear program. Uh, and then in 2011, the United States leads a NATO uh, airstrike, uh, an intervention that ultimately results in the deposition and the death of Muammar Gaddafi. Um, so, uh, look, I think that that lesson is, is palpable. Uh, I think it's real. Uh, I think it's a lesson that North Korean leaders have likely learned. Uh, and I think the evidence also supports it. Uh, I think the, you know, think of the difference between the way the United States treated Think back to the George W. Bush administration. Right? You had this so-called axis of evil. North Korea is part of it. Iraq is also part of it. But only one of those countries was subject to an American invasion. Uh, and that was the country that didn't have a nuclear program and didn't have nuclear weapons. Um, so I think this is one area where the conventional wisdom does actually match up with the academic scholarship. Uh, which shows that countries that have nuclear weapons are less likely to be invaded, are less likely to be attacked or be victimized in acts of military aggression. Um, so I think that remains an important incentive for countries to get nuclear weapons. But I'll say on the other hand, one thing that the academic scholarship also shows is that nuclear security guarantees tend to be pretty credible. Um, in the case of Ukraine, of course, the United States uh, argues that it wasn't a security guarantee that extended to a Ukraine. Ukraine interpreted it differently. Uh, but let, let's look at less ambiguous cases, cases like NATO uh, or even the Warsaw Pact, where you have uh, a primary nuclear-armed patron offering explicit security guarantees, right, defense commitments to a variety of allies. In fact, in many cases, actually placing nuclear weapons on their territory. Uh, the evidence shows that that's actually extremely good for deterrence. Not for coercion, not for using them for aggression, but in terms of self-defense and preventing aggression, uh, extended deterrence, as we call in the literature, using nuclear weapons to provide a security guarantee to an ally uh, also tends to be extremely effective. So acquiring your own nuclear weapons is not the only path to deterrence, uh, but it is an effective one. The, uh, the, uh, uh, we found out uh, this morning that while the 
the consequences for American staff people and the collapse of the uh, Hanoi uh, summit on nuclear weapons tended to be loss of bureaucratic influence, that it, that it was a lot worse for the architects on the North mm. Korean side. Uh, <clears throat> and given this situation, what do you see ahead uh, for in the U.S.-North Korea nuclear arrangements, negotiations, whatever? Um, I, I tend to be, I have a mixture of optimism and pessimism. The pessimism uh, comes from, you know, my read of the situation is that North Korea invested a great deal and made gigantic sacrifices to acquire nuclear weapons. They are not about to give those nuclear weapons up for a handshake and a smile, or even economic aid. Uh, I, I think the Kim family for years has believed that nuclear weapons are an important security guarantee, uh, a guarantee against a future American administration that might decide that regime change is the best path towards stability on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, the, I think the most likely path to North Korean nuclear disarmament, although it's highly unlikely, uh, the, the country that has the most leverage over North Korea is China. Uh, and of course, China has always been reluctant, I think, to, uh, you know, to put, hold North Korea's feet to the fire for a couple of reasons. One is if they support economic sanctions that are too effective and result in the collapse of the North Korean government, they have a refugee problem. Hundreds of thousands, potentially, of you know, malnourished or starving North Korean refugees on the border with China. Uh, that's something they want to avoid. But I think, on the other hand, uh, there are also certain advantages for China in keeping this nuclear crisis sort of at a slow boil, uh, keeping the United States distracted, keeping it, it committed. Uh, when the U.S. is paying attention to the Korean Peninsula, it's not paying attention to the South China Sea uh, or is thinking less about the South China Sea. So I think for, from China's perspective, it actually has certain interests in preventing a permanent resolution to this crisis. Uh, and I think their behavior reflects that. China has often been willing to support economic sanctions right up to the point, but not over the line where they would be truly effective. Um, and uh, for that reason, I think this, you know, this tension, level of tension will continue. For me, the, you know, the best path pour, forward is to try to establish dialogue, try to establish a relationship with North Korea to prevent the kinds of misunderstandings that could lead to an accidental use of nuclear weapons. That, to me, is the most dangerous situation. Uh, you know, a North Korean nuclear missile it, uh, or a, a ballistic missile at the height of a crisis during you know, some kind of Twitter exchange explodes on the launch pad, uh, which North Korean missiles have been prone to do. Uh, do the North Koreans believe that is the first wave of an American attack, or do they believe it was an accident? Uh, we want to, I think, maintain, maintain tensions at a low enough level uh, that the possibility of an American attack never crosses their mind, or at least not plausibly, uh, to minimize or mitigate the, the, the possible negative effects uh, of an accident like that. Hi, thank you for this. It's a, a field I'm terribly ignorant in. So forgive my stupid questions. Um, in no the early 2000s, when uh, North Korea was figuratively jumping up and down saying we're getting nuclear weapons, it seems to me America was just too involved, as we always are, in oil-producing regions to take advantage of that warning. 
Um, so my first question would be, and I'll take them off quickly. My first question is, um, in your field, do people feel like this n North Korean issue might have been resolved to some degree if we had given him some attention back then? Mm -hmm. Secondly, I just want to say, I think another, and you've sort of, you, we've sort of hinted at it, but when you mentioned how economic sanctions have caused some countries not to pursue or to proliferate but to cut, uh, cut out their nuclear program. I look at South Africa and I go, well, Namibia doesn't have nuclear weapons or Botswana or, you know, so they don't have a threat to feel like that. Just like we uh, have nuclear weapons, a lot of our buildup is, as you said, because of Russia. So countries around other countries that, so, you know, if we're helping our allies have nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. It's going to proliferate, I think, and, and comment on that. And, and thirdly, it scares me when you talk about the proliferation of the smaller nuclear weapons because, oh, yeah, it won't do as much damage. But isn't in your field, do people feel that's more likely because it's smaller to open the door to countries using a nuclear weapon than, than the other responds with a small, you know, small warhead? But you've all now you've jumped in, you've crossed that border, and could it, are we in more danger now mm -hmm. of of mass nuclear explosions because that door is easier to open? Thank you. Great questions. <laughs> okay, well, you got three questions, so that's good. And let me just say, no questions are stupid. Look, this is one of the points I want to leave you with, which is that. Um, you know, it's important, critical, and also possible that we as average citizens understand the nuclear strategic issues that the United States is facing. These are not issues that can just be left to the experts uh, because they have life and death consequences for, for everybody. So these are important. Um, okay, so your first question was about North Korea, whether they could have been bought off. Um, I, I think, number one, nobody knows. Uh, nobody knows what the... The Kims are thinking. Uh, of course, the United States struck a deal with North Korea in 1994, uh, which was effectively a, a, a bribe to provide a variety of economic incentives, nuclear energy uh, to North Korea in exchange for halting its progress on its nuclear program. Uh, now, there's dispute. Well, I think what there's not dispute about is that the US and South Korea were slow to meet their obligations. Uh, and there was. Um, there were some misgivings in the U.S. Congress about providing this kind of aid to North Korea. And so the North Koreans eventually claimed that the U.S. was violating the terms of the deal. And, of course, that's open to interpretation. There weren't explicit uh, provisions that were being violated, but there was doubt in the minds of the North Koreans uh, about whether the U.S. was going to uphold their end of the bargain. Now, wh whether this was just a pretext for what North Korea was going to do anyway, I think nobody really knows. Uh, and we just don't know enough about you know, what goes on inside the North Korean government, and we haven't been able to perform the kind of inspections that would tell us the history of their nuclear program to know exactly when they made certain steps uh, and whether they were in response to the, the collapse of that deal. Um, but I think certainly now that North Korea has built the bomb, has a nuclear arsenal, and much better ballistic missiles, I think that ship has sailed. I think we have to acknowledge the reality that they're part of the nuclear uh, your second question is about allies, uh, and uh, the way I understood it was whether, 
what, whether protecting allies with a nuclear umbrella undermines the credibility of nonproliferation. Uh, some people have made this argument. Yeah. Right. So, uh, would um, I don't know? Adver yeah. Would an adversary of an American ally feel more compelled to build nuclear weapons? Uh, I think North Korea is a case where that seems to have been true. Uh, that North Korea was concerned about American nuclear capabilities and, and conventional military capabilities. Uh, now, I think that it has competing effects. In the country that is underneath the nuclear umbrella, uh, the research shows that those kinds of security guarantees tend to be very effective, not just at deterring attacks, but also preventing proliferation. Uh, so security guarantees can be very useful for that, but they do potentially, I think, have that follow-on effect. Uh, and then you know, your last question is about, the, as I read it, the nuclear threshold. Um, and to me, this is the greatest risk of this turn toward low-yield nuclear weapons, uh, is that it will blur the distinction between what is conventional and what is nuclear. During the Cold War, and really as early as the 1950s, we see Dwight Eisenhower uh, and his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, have these famous conversations that they had behind closed doors, which we now have the transcripts of, where they're complaining that the U.S. public thinks there's a difference between nuclear and conventional weapons. And they're complaining that the Europeans are so soft about, these, uh, about nuclear weapons that they can't use them in the Korean War. And that's what Eisenhower wanted to do, was to use, or at least threaten to use them in the Korean War. And he was worried that he was constrained from doing it because the US public saw nuclear weapons as something different, something special, a unique category of weapon. This is as early as 1950. And I think in the years since, that distinction has only become sharper, at least during the Cold War, where you have nuclear weapons over here, you have conventional weapons over here, and once you cross that nuclear threshold, you can't control what happens next. Right? Once you invoke nuclear weapons and you use them in a conflict, nobody knows where that kind of a conflict will end. At least that's the fear that American leaders have had that prevented them from using nuclear weapons in the past. So it's a useful, I think a useful fear in many ways. Um, but I think we see that distinction starting to erode. Uh, I've done some survey research, uh, public opinion research in, in the United States about attitudes toward nuclear weapons. And what I found is number one, especially among younger people. So I think the, the dividing line that I used was people under 40. You know, didn't grow up knowing where the nearest fallout shelter was, never practiced hiding under their desks, uh, can, you know, don't even really have any memories of the Soviet Union. Uh, they think about nuclear weapons very differently from older generations. And specifically, they see a much weaker, a much blurrier distinction between what is nuclear and what is conventional. And I think as nuclear weapons get smaller and smaller, that dividing line will become even fuzzier. And the risk is that we will find ourselves in a nuclear conflict uh, with uh, an end to that conflict that we can't foresee, that we can't predict. If we cross the nuclear threshold, I think nobody knows what will happen. And so you know, policies that make it easier to cross that threshold, I think carry some risk that we don't know exactly how a nuclear conflict will end. Uh, and it might not end in terms that are favorable to us. 
Okay, thank you again. Oh, thank you so much.